Father God, we do thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known. Um, uh, you've created this world and you've created man in your image. He's, we have rebelled against you, uh, but you are a gracious God. And we see your plan in the Bible unfold from beginning to end. And uh, we thank you that you speak through it so wonderfully to us today. Uh, we pray that by your spirit, as we have your word uh, read and, and preached, we pray that your spirit would give us uh, ears to hear, um, that we wouldn't just hear it with our, with, our, with our ears and our brains, but we would take it in deeply, uh, change us from the core of our being uh, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're reading from Psalm 22 today, and you'll find it uh, bookmarked in the uh, Bible that you were given on the way in, so... Uh, Read along with me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you, trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, yet... Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no, help, no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. 
before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to all, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It's great being here, as I've said. Please do keep your Bibles open there as we'll be looking through that psalm as we do tackle this tough question together. God, where are you in the suffering? Now, I have mentioned it's a tough topic, and I will just say up front, uh, if everything goes really well for me, I've worked out I've probably lived just a bit over a quarter of my life, uh, maybe a bit under a third. Um, So I'm certainly no expert on this topic of evil and suffering, but In my life already, um, so far, my relatively short existence, I've found myself asking this question many, many times. God, where are you in all the suffering? I remember when I was 14, how it felt uh, when my best friend's mum passed away. Uh, The grief in our friendship group at that time was just massive. Uh, And it's completely torn apart, uh, this guy's life. Uh, Twelve years later, we're still left wondering... Why does God let awful things like cancer happen? Uh, My second cousin died suddenly while playing football a few years back. He was about to turn 18. Uh, And we still don't really know how it happened. The doctors couldn't really get to the bottom of it. It just came out of nowhere. Uh, And as I watched uh, the bewildered tears on the faces of my family at his funeral, I couldn't help but wonder, where was God in all of that? Or what was God thinking when a truck ran over one of my best friends as he rode to work just before Christmas in 2012. He was one of the fittest, happiest guys that I knew. And now, all these years later, he's just beginning to learn how to walk again. This is an issue that everyone has to wrestle with, isn't it? Whether you're interested in it or not, whether you're an expert or not. I'm still trying to make sense of what's happened so far in my life, and I'm not sure that I ever really will. And I must admit, going into preparing this talk uh, for this morning, I thought if I work really hard uh, and look in the right places, I might just find some neat one-liner answers to this question. But I have learned a lot, but I've got to say, I don't really have all the answers, so I'll tell you up front. I don't have the neat one-liners that you might be looking for today, Um, but I have been really strengthened as I thought about how Jesus speaks into our suffering in this world. And I also recognise, having lived only about a quarter or a third of my life, um, I don't have the same life experience as many in this room do. Uh, And so as we tackle a tough topic like this, uh, let me just say one of the great things about being part of a church family where there's people of different ages and stages is that we can care for each other, uh, share our experiences with one another Uh, as we wrestle with this together. So can I encourage you uh, to look out for one another afterwards today? Now, with all that in mind, 
The Bible really has some things to say about this question that we need to hear. Uh, it doesn't mean it gives us a neat answer. The verses we've heard read aren't the Bible's 31 definitive verses on the topic of suffering. Uh, but I do hope we will see that the Bible gives us what we need, gives us what we need to get through. Uh, and I know this will be a really personal question for some of us. Um, I don't know many of you guys really well. I don't know what baggage you might have brought in with you this morning. Uh, but there are bound to be numbers of us in a room this size, numbers of us who are doing it really tough right now. Uh, this, this talk might not meet you exactly where you need, uh, so it would be great for us to talk more afterwards, or you might want to grab Steve or another trusted Christian friend uh, to talk more. For others of us, this question of God and hurt and suffering might be more of an intellectual dilemma, uh, and we'll be thinking through some of those philosophical problems raised by the question of God and suffering, and hopefully we'll begin to glimpse how Jesus offers genuine comfort and hope in the face of suffering. Uh, so given all that, given how hard this topic is, let me just pray one more time and ask for God's help as we look at it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help me to be sensitive and true to your word as I speak now. Please help all of us as we think about this really hard question. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Bible. And we pray that wherever we're up to today, would come out of here knowing you better and knowing the real comfort and hope that Jesus holds out for us. Amen. So we've heard an ancient song read from the Bible today, Psalm 22. I thought I'd read out a bit of a song from the 2000s. Uh, after I became a Christian in my late teens, one of the first times I remember being really distraught over this question uh, is when I was listening to this song. It's one of my favourites. It's by a guy called Tom Waits. Not sure if anyone's into him. He's a great songwriter, and it's a really sad song about a little girl called Georgia Lee. Cold was the night and hard was the ground. They found her in a small grove of trees, and lonesome was the place where Georgia was found. She's too young to be out on the street. Why wasn't God watching? Why wasn't God listening? Why wasn't God there for Georgia Lee? They're pretty cutting questions, aren't they? How can things like that happen in the world? Is God just looking the other way, turning a blind eye to all that's going on in this world? Well, we're going to be looking at four main questions uh, this morning. The first one is, is this even the right question for us to ask? Is this the right question to be asking? Because the question that we're raising today is addressed to God God, where are you in the suffering? Are we way off the mark even trying to address a question like this, a question about pain and suffering, to God? Uh, if so much pain exists in the world, uh, is it possible for a God who would want to hear this question to exist? Um, I reckon some of the strongest arguments against Christianity come from this angle. And the argument often goes something like this. If God uh, is both loving and powerful then he'd end suffering. And the fact that there is suffering means that God either doesn't love us, so he doesn't want to stop the pain, or that he's powerless and can't do anything to stop it. And a God that isn't all loving isn't the kind of God you'd want to know, isn't the kind of God you'd want to talk to. And a God that isn't all powerful isn't really a God at all. It's a pretty solid argument, isn't it? It makes this topic seem pretty intimidating. 
But let's think about some of the assumptions behind this argument a little more, because I think we can come to a much more satisfying conclusion if we do. Uh, so let's lay them out, what I just said. So the first assumption is an all-powerful God would be able to end suffering, which is fair enough. An all-loving God would desire to end suffering is the second assumption. There we go, it's up there. The fact is that suffering exists. We can't argue with that. Uh, so the conclusion is that an all-powerful, all-loving God, therefore, does not exist. It makes it seem quite impossible to tackle. Uh, we can't question that suffering exists. You don't have to see much before you see that. Uh, I think the key words, though, for us to narrow in on and think about a bit more are those words, would desire. This argument leaves out the possibility that a loving God may have loving reasons to allow suffering to continue. And the other thing for us to be aware of is that we live in a world, a society that assumes that all suffering is always bad. But could it be possible that God would have a purpose for it, a loving purpose for it? Could there be unimaginably worse suffering out there that we know God is protecting us from? Well, an alternative set of assumptions would lead us to a different conclusion. So let's have a think about this. The first assumption, an all-powerful God exists. Second assumption, an all-loving God exists. The fact remains that suffering exists. But we can come to the conclusion that God must have loving reasons which he can achieve for permitting suffering. God must have loving reasons which he can achieve for permitting suffering. Now that's a lot of ideas to kind of rattle off very quickly, uh, but hopefully we can see that the fact that there is evil and suffering in the world doesn't once for all convincingly prove that there is no God. It leaves us with the problem, rather, of thinking, what are these loving reasons that God might have for allowing things to be as they are? In fact, I think we could go even further and say that the presence of suffering in the world might even point us towards the existence of an all-powerful, all-loving God, rather than away from it. Uh, let me tell you a bit more about what I mean. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the writer Jean-Paul Sartre, a bit of a famous existential writer uh, from back in the day. He writes that without God, it is nowhere written that the good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now upon the plane where there are only men. He makes a good point. How can we feel let down when someone lies to us or feel cheated when someone steals from us if there is no one who can say for sure that these things are bad? If there are only men, if there is only nature and no God, then death and violence are completely natural and perhaps ought to be permissible. Sometimes we use this very logical way of thinking to try and comfort ourselves in times of grief. But something in us doesn't really believe it's true. When hardship enters our lives, whether we're believers or not, it's funny how often we find ourselves asking, why would God let this happen to me? Uh, one of my favourite sitcoms is Seinfeld, a classic 90s sitcom. And there's this episode where George, one of the characters in the show, fears that he might have cancer. And he says, I knew God wouldn't let me be successful. Uh, and Jerry replies, I thought you didn't believe in God. And George's response is pretty interesting. I do for the bad things. You know, maybe you can relate to this way of thinking about God. Maybe the God of the Bible is like George's God of the bad things. 
just some sort of removed force that plays with us for his own amusement. Psalm 22 takes us to the cross of Jesus. Uh, A Christian hymn writer with the fitting name of Samuel Crossman puts it like this as he responds to the cross. My song is love unknown. My save is love to me. Love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? It's just a reminder that this is much more than a question of logic. This is a question of life and death, of love and hate. And we all know that none of the equations and assumptions and arguments that I've mentioned before will really be of much comfort in the hard times. I've started out like this just to put forward that it's reasonable to believe that a loving God and pain and suffering can coexist. But the real question is an emotional one, isn't it? Why do they have to coexist? Like Tom Waits, the things that we see and experience are bound to make us ask, why wasn't God there? Where is God in all the suffering? Well, that's exactly where Psalm 22 begins. And it brings us to the second question we're going to look at this morning. Why God? Have a look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 22 on page 547. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. This song from the Old Testament was written by King David, uh, otherwise known as the man after God's own heart. And here he is, almost accusing God of deserting him. Did you know that this is how one of the, the great men of the Bible spoke to his God? In fact, Jesus himself, uh, God in the flesh, uses these very same words to cry out to his Father in his dying moments. Uh, Jesus cried these words as he hung on the cross because he wanted people to know that this song, Psalm 22, sums up his experience. So if you ever wanted insight into the dying mind of Jesus on the cross, this song is the place to go. And it begins with the question, why God? This is part of what I find very attractive and very convincing about the Bible, because it's honest. It reflects the realities of life. Real people crying out to God about real pain. The Bible doesn't give a straightforward solution to the problem of suffering and evil, which makes it hard to give a talk like this. And it means that it'll be hard to put forward a really neat presentation for us to all leave happy. But don't you think if the Bible did give a straightforward answer about suffering, wouldn't you be just a little bit suspicious? Because we all know that life isn't simple like that. Life doesn't work like that. To some degree, like King David, we've all heard the silence of God in times of need. And the Bible encourages us not to conclude that there there is no God then or that he isn't loving. Uh, It's interesting that throughout this psalm, even though God is so far from saving him, as we've just heard, even though he doesn't answer his groaning servant, he is still my God for David and Jesus. You see it littered throughout the whole psalm. My God, my God. Rather than telling us to act like we have it all together or to try and see the good in the situation or anything like that, 
the Bible just tells us to cry out to our God. And it's sad and it's kind of embarrassing that sometimes Christians are the fastest ones to put suffering in a box and to explain away someone's pain by saying it must be the result of some sin or a lack of faith or that it's for some obvious purpose and why can't you see that? The Bible doesn't do that. It cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Suffering will come in life. We know that. And it's often bewildering, isn't it? And it's natural to cry out to God at these times. Uh, Now we're up to our third question. Uh, Where does all the pain come from? Psalm 22 attributes much of uh, David's torment to the work of other human beings. Have a look at verse 16 with me. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Here we see the disorder of human nature up close. People behaving like animals. Dogs have surrounded me. And this is really the story of human history, isn't it? We see it almost every week, like Steve said. There's so much evil done at the hands of men. Ever since Adam and Eve, people have been turning their backs on God's way to live uh, and do it, the, do it ourselves, to wear our own little crowns. And because God is loving, he's allowed us to do this. And so we live in a world where people hurt each other, where we behave like animals. You know, a minor example. One Friday night recently, uh, there was a guy who was in a hurry, uh, so he decided to run a stop sign and crash into my beloved Toyota Starlet. Uh, And it was the end of my Toyota Starlet. Now, thankfully, it wasn't too serious an accident. It was a write-off, but everyone in the car was fine. Um, But it's an example, isn't it, of just following our own motives, doing things that we think we need to do, can sometimes have painful consequences for others. Uh, And, you know, I might have been the victim in that story, um, but I hurt people too, if I'm honest. I follow my own agendas, and I try and treat others well, but really, I let people down all the time in all sorts of ways. Uh, I'm pretty sure we all do, right? We're all familiar with the animal within, and it's the cause of so much hardship in this world. That's the disorder of human nature. Uh, But this immediately raises questions about events that happen that there's really no explanation for. There's no human explanation for it. Uh, So a couple of years ago, a good uh, friend of mine, Wilbur, uh, he went missing while he was out on a photography outing in the ocean. Uh, And his brothers searched for him for days and days. Uh, They found his kayak and his camera, but they never ended up finding him. Uh, So he died, not at the hands of any person, not because of any evil scheme. It just happened. And he was one of the most talented guys I knew. But the ocean, the ocean took him away. The only words that I can use to describe it are senseless and unfair. It's a reminder, isn't it, that so much suffering in this world doesn't happen as a direct result of some bad thing we do. Uh, In Luke's Gospel, people ask Jesus about a freak accident, Uh, you know, a bit of a natural disaster, I guess, where a tower fell on some people. And he explains to his listeners that this wasn't the result of them being worse people than others. Uh, It it was a result of the world being broken. 
Uh, We might want a simpler explanation, but there just isn't one. Jesus doesn't give his listeners a clear reason why it happened, but unsettlingly, he does tell them what their response should be. Sort out your relationship with your creator while you can. Suffering now is real. Don't spend too long trying to explain it because there is a greater suffering that you can avoid by turning back to God. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, God tells the first man that sin has not only wrecked our relationship with God and each other, but also the world's relationship to us. Uh, So I think I've got it up on the slide. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. The ground beneath our feet, the ocean, the work we do, the food we eat, our bodies, even our minds, they can all turn on us. Our defiance of God, that choice to wear our own little crowns, has had massive consequences, not just for our relationships, but for the creation itself. Now we know that God cares about this. He wants us to cry out to him like King David. Uh, But what has he done about it? And that really leads us to our fourth and probably our biggest question really for this morning. Is there any comfort? Uh, It's common to feel that maybe comfort would be easier to find in a godless world. Uh, Many will try to suppress the reality of pain, saying that grief, loss, disasters, they're just a part of natural life in this world. Uh, But I think in reality, very few people are able to maintain this view when tragedy really hits. The singer of this ancient song we've been looking at uh, finds hope without cutting God out of the picture. In fact, God is very much at the centre of the picture, the centre of his hope. Uh, In verse 22, just over the page, uh, he says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. How can David say this? How can Jesus identify this with this at all as he hangs on the cross, breathing his final laboured breaths? Now we've seen that it's not unreasonable to believe in a loving God in the face of pain. We've seen that God invites us to cry out to him in times of hardship. But how does he bring us from agony to praise? We're going to look at a few reasons for that. And one of the clearest answers is that God has promised to one day end it. Uh, He's promised to judge. You don't need to know much about the Bible uh, to know about the idea of Judgment Day. This is the time that God has set aside to hold everyone accountable for how they've treated him, his people, and his world. And this is a great source of comfort for those who have been victims of terrible evil. God hates evil, and he's promised to do something about it. That otherworldly suffering Worse than anything we know in this world is found in the righteous wrath, the righteous anger of God, uh, because he's promised to bring justice to every evil dictator, liar, cheat, violent husband, pedophile priest. He's going to bring it all to an end and hold it to account. But why doesn't he just do it now? Why doesn't he just end it and put us out of our misery? It might not be immediately obvious when we're crying out in pain, but there is a loving reason for this. Uh, Let's think about it. If if God was to 
wipe out all causes of hardship, what would be left of the world? What would be left of us? We are right to tremble at the thought of judgment day. And God, in his kindness, has delayed ending it all for one reason only, uh, that people might have the chance to turn back to him and be saved. Jesus told a story that sums it up brilliantly. Uh, it's still a famous story today. It's a masterpiece of storytelling. Uh, you can find it in Luke chapter 15, and I'd really encourage you to have a read for yourself if you haven't before, uh, maybe later on today. Uh, I'll tell it quickly for us now. It's a story all about a family, about a father and his two boys. And the younger of the two boys grows restless one day and decides it's time to break free, to move out of home. Uh, he's not just thinking about moving out to a share house or something like that. He asks his dad to give him his inheritance early. Uh, that is, the money a father sets aside to give uh, his children after he dies. Uh, his father's response is much like God's response to us. He says, okay. He definitely could have uh, locked this ignorant young son in his room. He could have punished him pretty severely, really. I mean, the son has basically implied that his dad, dad is as good as dead to him. He just wants his money. Uh, but the dad doesn't. He gives him the money, half the farm, and off he goes. And the son at first thinks he's free as a bird. He goes off, parties hard, spends up big till he runs out. And he you know, looks, looks for some part-time work to keep him going. Uh, he ends up working on a pig farm. And he hits rock bottom one day when he realises that he's so hungry, he's eyeing off the scraps of the food the pigs have been eating. He's starving, he's hurting, and he knows it's because of how he's treated his family. And he shudders at the thought of returning to face the music at home. But off he goes, practising his apology speech in his head, planning on making himself maybe a slave to his father to repay him for what he's done. Uh, he gets a surprise when he turns up there because uh, his dad's already waiting. He's been there a long time. And when he spots the speck of his son on the horizon, he runs. He does what no dignified man would do. He runs through the town to meet and to hug his filthy, embarrassing son in front of the whole town. And that's exactly what God is doing for us right now. You know, the son asking for his inheritance, it's like humanity's decision to cut God out of the picture, to wear our own little crowns. The way we've treated God is like, you know, we've wanted everything he has to give, but nothing to do with the giver. He's as good as dead to us. And like the father in this story, God has allowed us to do this. Just as an aside, you know, an easy answer to the problem of suffering would be if God just made it impossible for us to hurt ourselves and each other, made it impossible for us to disobey him. But in order to do that, God would have to take away our ability to choose, to take away our free will. Uh, which is pretty much the least loving thing that you can do to another person. So the broken world we see today is like the pigsty that we've gotten ourselves into. And our Father is withholding his judgment so that we can have the chance to come back to him and to be welcomed into his loving arms. You know, when the son returned to his father in the story, he was expecting to come back to massive embarrassment. But he found his father waiting there to welcome him and it was even better than that. Things just didn't go back to how they were before. The family put on a huge party to celebrate, which is a big thought because it came at a pretty big cost to the father. I mean, he's already lost half the farm. He's not getting that back. And yet he pays. 
He pays to restore the relationship. Pays in money, but even bigger than that, he pays in losing face as he goes to welcome his embarrassing son back in. And that's exactly what we see at the cross, where Jesus cries those famous words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is God losing face in a big way and paying a huge cost himself for the sake of us who have chosen to go our own way and gotten ourselves into a huge mess of pain. God will judge every injustice, but he's made a way for anyone who trusts in Jesus to be forgiven because those sins are already paid for. So we can take great comfort knowing that God has promised to end it. God will end the pain. Not just that, God has promised to renew. This world and everyone in it has an expiry date, and we know that from sometimes very painful experience. Now, it's one thing for me to say, well, this is how things are because it's a broken world and we've rejected God. Uh, It's true, but it doesn't sit very well with us. It's not very comforting, is it? Uh, There's a book uh, in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes, which has one of my favorite verses in it. It sums up our feeling very well. Uh, It says, God has set eternity into the hearts of men. When we look around at all the injustice, when I think about my friend Wilbur, Uh, It's a reminder that we don't want people to die. We don't want the world to expire. Uh, The Bible tells us that this is because God has imprinted something of his eternal nature on us. We're made to be his people in right relationship with him for eternity. Uh, Our defiance of him has cut us off from that, but it's still what we want. Eternity. The Bible is the story of God going to unimaginable lengths in order to restore that relationship. And it will mean the end of death and a restoration of the world around us. Now, I don't know um, whether you believe in heaven or not. I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven. Maybe some clouds and harps and things like that. Uh, The last book in the Bible describes it like this, in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God has promised not only to right the wrongs of the past, but to actually renew everything so that there's no longer any death or crying or pain. You know, the story of that lost son that Jesus told ends on this note, a party where things are even better than they were before. Psalm 22 ends with joy, I will praise you. After his suffering, the risen Jesus shared joy with his disciples, and that's where everything is headed. But what about now, while we wait, how can we keep our heads up? Uh, while God allows things to continue as they are? How can we trust those promises that we've been thinking about are true? Uh, The answer lies in the wounds of God himself. Jesus cried out the words of Psalm 22 as he gained them. Jesus was truly forsaken by God at the cross so that we will never have to be. I mentioned the writer Jean-Paul Sartre before. Uh, He said that hell is other people. And you can buy coffee mugs that say that on them. 
which would be a lovely addition to your office, you know, hell is other people. Um, I think, actually, after reflecting on this psalm, Psalm 22, I think it would be more accurate to say that hell is no people and no God. Jesus endured the utter rejection of all those who walked past his cross. They shook their heads, you know, the religious authorities, his closest friends, and most crushingly of all, his heavenly Father. The four gospel accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible record that he was mocked and ridiculed. That's what the cross was all about. Rome showing just how shameful and pathetic a human being trying to rebel against them was. He was mocked and ridiculed. His hands and his feet were pierced by a band of religious leaders and Roman executioners. After hanging there for a few hours, feeling his bones out of joint and his heart like wax inside him, Jesus was laid to the dust of death. He went through everything that's in this psalm. And it's recorded that the risen Son of God returned, bearing scars on his hands and his feet. Our God has wounds. And this means that though there are things in this life that I'll probably never understand, I can trust God's motives. That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't get a simple mantra or a set of instructions to fix our lives. God gives us a person and he shows us just how invested he is in doing something about our suffering. He gives us himself in Jesus. Our God has wounds. God isn't removed or uninterested in the pain we suffer, even though it's so often the result of our own actions. God isn't just standing at the sidelines yelling out advice for us to somehow follow and feel better. No, Jesus is there with us at every tear, at every injustice. Every betrayal by a friend, every unfair accusation, every wound, every life taken too soon, Jesus knows. And he's there, he's been there, way beyond rock bottom, where we could never dream of going. Many people have suffered cruel and terrible deaths, but the unique thing about Jesus' death is that it was a sacrifice for our wrongdoing before God. He went there in our place. Jesus was completely shamed and embarrassed before people and his father as he bore the punishment for our sins. And we've been thinking about some of Jesus' famous last words from this psalm in the Old Testament. And both Jesus' death and this psalm end on a note of completion. John's Gospel records that as he breathed his last, Jesus said, It is finished. And perhaps he still had this psalm in mind because if you look Uh, Right there at the end, it finishes with the words, He has done it. Jesus completely satisfied the wrath and the anger of God for every sin on that cross. He bore that unimaginable, otherworldly pain so that anyone who trusts in him will never have to. I think we can only begin to approach the question of why we hurt so much uh, after we come to terms with why God hurt so much. I was talking to my great uncle uh, a few weeks ago. He lives in Wollonga. Um, we caught up, and he's, he's quite an eccentric man. Uh, he often comes at things from the left of field and sort of says things that, you know, you just shouldn't say and that sort of thing. Uh, I was talking about something to do with church, and he said, he just blurted out, that he can't bear the fact that the symbol of Christianity is a cross. He can't think of anything more morbid and depressing Uh, And I hadn't really thought about it before, but he kind of has a point, doesn't he? The cross really is a symbol of suffering, uh, of shame. 
Um, but it's also a symbol of redemption. Jesus' death was on our behalf uh, so that we can come back to the Father's arms safely. That's why it's a symbol of sure hope, not of shame, but of hope. Because we can't think of Jesus' death without thinking of his resurrection from the dead. He was the first one to show in the flesh that we're not crazy to have eternity set into our hearts. He went through hell so that we can have heaven, the forgiveness that we don't deserve, a restored relationship with God, hope beyond the grave, and the promise that God himself will one day wipe every tear from our eyes as he restores this broken world. Uh, So we don't just cry out in the face of suffering. We can look to the one who cried out in the face of unimaginable suffering. We can look to his wounds, to his love, his victory, and find not only comfort, but hope. Now, in a talk like this, it's tempting to finish off thinking again of our own suffering, uh, but we need to finish off thinking about the cross, where God gave us his best to save us from our worst. The Christian God is a God with scars. And I still haven't got questions to some of those, uh, answers to some of those questions that I started with, but this is what gets me through. My God has scars. Whatever happens to me, I might not have answers, but I'll be able to find the strength. And if you put your trust in Jesus, the one who's wounded but victorious, if you make the God with wounds your God, uh, then you can know that sure hope too.